unfiltered, uncensored, and unapologetic. This is the Retail War Zone Podcast. All right, so let's get a move in here. All right, tonight I am very honored to have Mr. Pete Whalen on with us. I'm going to give him a few minutes to talk about what he does, uh, why he does it, where he does it, and then we will go from there. So do want to preface everything. He's not here to give legal advice, so please do not misconstrue anything as such. Um, the links to his website, uh, employmentlawguidance.com, is underneath his screen. So if you have questions, feel free to go there and check out what he does. Having said that, Pete, the floor is yours. Well, great, Steve. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Um, my name is Pete Whalen, and I'm a partner at Burnaby and Cabot here in Washington, D.C. And we focus almost exclusively on employment law, and we represent exclusively employees um, from really a wide, a wide range of industries and businesses, professions, backgrounds. So we do a lot of uh, pretty much everything, but it's representing mostly individual employees in connection with their problems with their employers. Um, and I've been with this firm, I've been with Burnaby and Cabot uh, for uh, actually almost 13 years now. Um, I've been practicing employment law in general for uh, about 15 years. So I've seen a lot, but I see something new every day. The, uh, <laughs> you know, it just, it, it never ceases to surprise me. No matter how many times I see it, uh, the the things that employers try to pull um, against their employees. So that keeps it interesting from my perspective. Um, and yeah, that's that's one of the things I love about practicing employment law. It's obviously hugely important to my clients. Uh, you know, they usually come to us at, at one of the worst moments of their life when they have either just lost their job or fear that they're about to. Um, and it's, it's, it's just, it's an honor to be able to help the, the people that we can help in kind of guiding them through that process and hopefully getting them a good outcome and, you know, getting them in a spot where they are able to comfortably move on to their next thing and kind of put that chapter of their life behind them. Um, so I love it, and I love talking about employment law, so I'm looking forward to answering questions that anybody has um, and talking about it with you. Like you said, I'm not going to give anybody specific advice about what you in your specific situation should do, but um, but I will address kind of general situations and say, you know, if I were to advise somebody in that situation, here are the kinds of things that, that I would want to know and here are the kinds of things that I would advise them to do. So I'm looking forward to it. Awesome. So I would like to tell everybody, if you're active on Twitter, please check out his Twitter feed because he, that's a, how I found him. It just, I guess that the algorithm for Twitter or whatnot, he had posted something about dealing with HR mm -hmm. and he has these screens of like different things that you can do. And it is a wealth of information, honestly, if you go through it all. And they're just basic things that everybody probably should be doing if you find yourself in a situation where you may wind up having to pursue litigation. So please, please, please check it out. Uh, the first question I want to ask you, and this is always one that's mm -hmm. top of mind for me, is let's, I want to know your thoughts on arbitration agreements. 
because especially mm. in the retail sector, you they consider it almost like a condition of employment with your new hire paperwork. You're signing an arbitration agreement, and especially if you're young and you have no idea what this is, you know, on the surface, it's like giving up your right to fair counsel, I guess you would say. Is that really that ironclad, or can that be circumvented in, you know, the situation where maybe there is a pending case? Yeah, that's that's an excellent question because that's one of the first things we ask potential clients when they're coming to see us is whether they have signed an arbitration agreement because if you do sign an arbitration agreement, it really does drastically limit your your rights to pursue the legal claims that you have and it reduces your leverage that you may have to kind of uh, negotiate a good severance or you know negotiate whatever you need to negotiate. Um, and yeah, unfortunately, in most situations, if you sign that agreement, um, it's likely going to be binding against you. And you may not even, the, the, that's the problem, as you said, most people don't know to look for it. You come in, you're a new employee, you sign a bunch of paperwork, you don't necessarily even read it all. They don't give you a copy after you sign it. So a lot of people end up signing something as, you know, their, their first day paperwork, and they don't even realize that, that they've signed this um, until later on down the road when they have a problem and they're, they're, you know, threatening legal action against their employer. And the employer says, you can threaten whatever legal action you like, but you're not going to take us to court because you signed an arbitration agreement and we're going to take you to arbitration, which keeps you out of court. And we can, we can talk separately about what that means as far as the disadvantages of arbitration. Um, but it is something that uh, employees need to be aware of and, you know, potential new employees need to be aware of when they're signing on with their new employer. And I think, you know, unfortunately, um, it, there are federal laws, the Federal Arbitration Act um, makes it very, let's put it this way, makes it very easy for courts to force people back into arbitration. You can file a lawsuit in court against your employer and what the employer will do is say they will they will file a motion with the court to say that the court can't rule on this, um, and they'll ask the court to dismiss the case and, until it's arbitrated. Um, and courts routinely grant those motions, so you can get the lawsuit filed, but that's about as far as you go. And then you end up in the private uh, arbitration process. Has anybody uh, ever approached that as like being very coercive? Yes. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we have had a, we had a client actually out in California and we do represent people nationwide. Um, but this is somewhat unusual. This is several years ago. We had a client, um, who signed an arbitration agreement and, you know, California courts, bless them, are, uh, more employee, employee friendly than most. So, uh, and it's with a, a, a large nationwide employer um, and has had this arbitration policy forever. Um, and our client signed it, but um, the circumstances were a little unusual. But, but at any rate, we ended up filing suit in state court and the employer filed to push it into arbitration. And we opposed that. And the basic argument was that exactly what you said, that um, the word is unconscionable 
that there is a, that, that the agreement can be procedurally unconscionable, which means that, you know, the, the, the way that you got the agreement is not fair. Or it could be substantively unconscionable, which means kind of the, the kind of the terms of the arbitration are not fair to the employee. And it turned out in this situation that the court found that it was both because essentially you could not work there unless you sign this agreement, which is how it is for most employees. And the the agreement had it set up so that all the claims that an employee could bring, like discrimination, whistleblowing, retaliation, that sort of thing, those all had to go into arbitration. But any claims that the, that an employer might bring, like stealing trade secrets or you know stealing intellectual property or something like that, the employer allowed themselves to take the employee to court. So the court in that case, which was very unusual, um, found that the that the arbitration agreement was not enforceable for those reasons. But again, I don't want to get anybody too enthusiastic about that because A, that was a California state court, and B, one of the unfortunate side effects of that was that the company you know, took their arbitration policy that they'd been enforcing for 20 years and changed it to oh. fix those problems and continued to make new employees sign this new and improved arbitration agreement. Nice. Um, question. So it can be done, but the, the best way is just to avoid it. And I know that's easy to say, um, but I think, yeah, unless employees kind of, uh, in, in much the same way that employees are getting more active lately uh, about uh, joining unions and, and banding together in that way, I, I think that we need to kind of increase awareness of this so that um, employees just refuse at the outset because we are in a, in a market now where employers are desperate for workers and workers have, you know, that's, that's one of the few times when you have that kind of leverage is at the beginning before you accept the job. So if you can accept the job without signing the agreement, um, you know, even if it kind of slips through the cracks and they just didn't, they didn't notice that you didn't sign it, um, you know, do that if you can, um, but just do whatever you can to not, have to sign one of those arbitration agreements. Excellent. Um, question from across the pond was, what do companies most often get wrong about employment law? Hmm. Whew. That's a good question. Um, there are about 20 different answers uh, that I could give. So, but that wouldn't be the most. Um, you know, one that comes to mind, and, and I don't know this is necessarily wrong about employment law, but it's one that I kind of find um, particularly annoying when we're involved uh, in representing a client is that companies will, you know, they have it as part of their employee handbook that if you are experiencing discrimination, harassment, retaliation, then you are encouraged or even required to go to HR and report it. And, and they promise that they will follow this process and they will investigate it and they will take appropriate action um, because the company's policies prohibit these kinds of um, acts. So employees, uh, you know, taking the employer's statements at face value and, and believing that they will abide by that, report these things. And then, of course, HR takes over and they may or may not conduct an investigation. But what, what HR does quite often, most often, I would say, and this is the part that drives me crazy, 
is that they don't evaluate whether the the accused employee violated their own company policies because in most cases they absolutely did. What they'll do instead is say, well, we investigated and it turns out that the employee, the accused employee didn't, didn't violate the law. Um, they may have been kind of sexually harassing, but they didn't get to the rise to the level of sexual harassment that's required by the law. Or, yeah, they may have used a racial slur here or there, but it was just an isolated thing. Um, they may have called you old and washed up, but, but that wasn't in the context of the discussion about your demotion. So, you know, these, these aren't violations of law, so there's nothing we can do. And that's just a load of crap. I mean, there is absolutely something that the company can do. The company can enforce what it says is its own policies that, that prohibit these kinds of acts. But they don't do that. They, they encourage you to come in and report and say that these are the these are the standards that we're following as we put them in our handbook. But then when you do report, they hold you to this much, much higher standard that 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 is that's to prove the legal standard. It's a lot higher burden. But but that's not what they're telling employees when they're encouraging them to report. So it's really, you know, it really pulls a rug out from under employees who think that, you know, they read the handbook. They see what it says. They see that the conduct that they're complaining about is it fits right there. Um, so they go and report and then they, they receive this kind of response from HR, which is, sorry, there's nothing we can do. Um, and it's just not, it's not true. There is uh, obviously something the company could do if it wanted to, it just doesn't want to. Right. And now that this employee who's reported it, now they're obviously worried and rightfully so about what kind of retaliation am I going to face? Because everybody knows now that I reported this. Yep. So that's one one of many things that uh, that I think employers get wrong, um, but I think it's intentional. So I don't think it's I don't think it's a mistake. Next question uh, comes from Mad Dog. Uh, have you found it a regular practice for employers to deny FMLA FMLA claims? Um, I wouldn't say it's a regular practice. I think it, it definitely does depend on the employer. Um, I think a lot of times, uh, uh, let's see how to put this. Um, there are a lot of hoops that employees have to jump through um, that they sh Hold on. Let me back up again. It's easy to request FMLA leave. If you're an employee and you're entitled to FMLA, it's easy to request it. You don't even have to say FMLA. You need to, you need to make it clear that you need time off because you have some serious medical condition or a family member does and you need to be out for a while. Um, and that's supposed to be enough to trigger the company to say, oh, uh, let's talk about whether you need FMLA. Uh, keep in mind that you're not eligible for FMLA unless, number one, you've been working for that company for at least a year. So that knocks out a lot of people who don't get coverage at all. And your employer has to be big enough that it employs at least 50 people. Um, so that's another thing that can knock out some people and, and give them no coverage at all. But yeah, so so if you fall within those th those covered employers, um, there isn't much that you need to do to kind of trigger the process of HR saying, okay, here's here's the FMLA paperwork. Here's what you need to do. Um, but there, you know, beyond that point, there are hoops that you have to jump through because the employer does have the right to request documentation 
you know, medical documentation uh, showing that, yes, there is a serious medical condition um, and it's somebody who, you know, it's either you or someone in your family. Um, and a lot of times uh, that will kind of trip up employees because they don't necessarily want to share that, especially, you know, it could be something kind of embarrassing um, and you don't want to share that with your employer. But unfortunately, then you need to. You need to get those records, first of all, and share them with the employer um, to just to back up the fact that you are entitled to this leave. Um, and if the employer says, uh, we need a little bit more information, we need any more documentation, a lot of times that will kind of trip up an employee too because they'll be like, I, like what else do you need? Everything is right there. Um but if you don't kind of follow up and turn around and get that information to your employer within usually it's 15 days, um, then the employer can reject your leave. Um, so I think obviously we see it a lot because the people who are denied for leave or, um, or in some way discouraged from taking it are the ones that eventually come talk to us and say, Hey, <laughs> I may need your help. Um, but I think, um, I think what usually happens is not so much that it's denied. It's that the employer uses those kinds of roadblocks that, that the law actually allows them to use to trip up employees. And then also they will just, um, uh, they will discourage, you know, sometimes openly discourage employees from, from taking the leave that they're otherwise entitled to. And that doing that is, that's not legal. Um, you know, if you have kind of a, I'm sure many of you have had this when you have told your supervisor or whatever, you know, I need to take some time off. I have to get surgery. And the reaction is, oh, great. Uh, I can't believe you're sticking me with this. Um, you know, I get it. That's a, that's a natural human reaction because then they need to find somebody to cover. And But but you can't do that. That, you know, that kind of reaction, courts have found that that is um, – that interferes with your right because that obviously is discouraging the employee from – uh, taking the leave, they may say, Ooh, you know, I, maybe I better not take this because they, they may retaliate against me and fire me if I do take it. Um, so those kinds of reactions, um, whether it's intentional or not, or another way that employers will often kind of interfere with an employee's FMLA leave, FMLA leave and, you know, try to trick them into not taking it essentially. Nice. Um, question from hybrid hooligan was, how often in your cases have HR actually investigated complaints about employees or just fire them without investigating? Uh, that is an excellent question. Um, and honestly, honestly, I don't know. Um, the only way we can really find out for sure is if we do eventually file suit and get into discovery where we can send document requests to the other side and say, you know, produce all the documents um, from your investigation of this complaint and all your documents from investigations of similar complaints and where they can answer an interrogatory where we say, you know, describe every, all the steps that you took in investigating our client's complaint. Um, so, you know, when we file a lawsuit and we get into discovery, we can find that stuff out. But as many of you probably know, um, in normal everyday life before you get to a lawsuit, HR loves to use the uh, 
the confidentiality line that they can't tell you anything because the, the investigation is confidential. We, we can't let you know who we're talking to or what anybody said or what we did. You'll just have to trust us. Um, and anytime I can kind of, you know, outside of representing a client, anytime I'm just talking with HR people, um, you know, even if it's like interacting on Twitter, I will, I'll press them on that. I'll be like, can you explain to me why it is that HR insists on protecting the confidentiality of the alleged harasser or the alleged, you know, whatever. Um, and you know, I got a, I got a variety of answers on that, but typically it's just, um, we don't want the person who was accused to sue the company for defamation or something like that. If it comes out and, I just honestly, I don't buy that. I mean, I know that that's, I guess that's how HR is trained. And like, that's the, uh, that's the industry line for HR professionals is that we, we just don't do it. And you kind of have to push through that. I get that you don't do it, but why don't you do it? Well, we don't want to do it because of confidentiality. I get that. But what it comes down to is, you know, the bottom line is they are protecting the, the alleged harasser or the alleged whatever, uh, more than they are the person who lodged the complaint. And I get that sometimes people lodge complaints and it's, there's, there's no real basis to it. But, you know, if you are really genuinely being sexually harassed in the workplace and you, you know, muster up the courage to risk your risk retaliation and risk your job to report it, I, I think that the very least that the company can do is tell you what they did for an investigation and what the outcome is particularly if they're not going to fire the guy because, you know, you go back to work the next day and there he is and you're walking around wondering, did they do anything? Did they even talk to him? And, you know, HR's party line is we can't tell you. We, we conducted an appropriate investigation and we took appropriate action and that's all we can tell you. And there's no way to prove that unless it actually does go to court. Right. Yeah. I mean, basically i mean you can there are certain circumstances where you can find out like um so if you if you told hr that there was a witness to a particularly you know obvious incident of harassment or something you can talk to that person later and say hey did hr ever talk to you about what you saw and you know hopefully they'll tell you yeah they did or no i didn't hear anything from hr um and the other trick that hr uses is they'll say that Company policy is that you, the complaining employee, cannot discuss the investigation while the investigation is still going because we will consider that to be essentially tampering with witnesses. You can't tamper with any witnesses. So you can't talk to anybody until we tell you the investigation is done. So that puts you in another spot where during the process you can't find out whether they're actually doing anything. And once they come back to you and tell you that they're done – then they're not going to reopen the investigation. I'll tell you that. Um, so yeah, I mean, th this is kind of the situation where usually HR doesn't lie about it and say that, yeah, we conducted an investigation when they didn't do anything, but I mean, they don't need to do that. What they will typically do instead is, um, you know, if they, it, it, if they, I'm thinking of a couple particular instances where we did find out what happened during discovery, and it's basically a situation where 
it was a sexual harassment case and the employee complained and, you know, gave the whole story about everything that happened. And the HR basically gave their notes from the interview of the complaining employee. It just gave the notes to the harassing supervisor. Wow. Like before their interview. So I, presumably the only thing I can figure is that so that the manager could study them and come up with responses. So, you know, that was then a couple of days later when HR, they did, they, they interviewed the guy and shockingly he had, he had great answers ready for every allegation. Um, and that was it. That was their investigation. And, and their conclusion was, this is the other thing that HR does. The conclusion was, well, there were no outside witnesses. There is your complaint, his response. You know, we can't, we can't determine who, you know, who is more credible. So, um, there's nothing we can do. Wow. And again, that's just, that's just a complete crock because the, the, you can't, there's no legitimate HR investigation that ends in no factual findings. Uh, HR, HR or somebody in the company has to make a decision about who is more credible and who they believe. Because if you're saying that I complained and said that this happened and the supervisor says, no, it didn't happen. And then nothing is done. Well, it's obvious who the company believes. They, they're taking the supervisor's story because if something did happen, they would have taken some kind of corrective action against that supervisor. So that's, those are the typical things that happen with HR. It's not a matter of, you know, we'll investigate or, or we investigated and then they, they lie about it. They didn't really investigate it. Um, it's usually more a matter of they'll do some kind of shoddy investigation just because – you know, it could just be incompetence. Um, that's that's always a possibility. It may not be malicious, or it could be a matter of yeah, they they did an investigation that was just set up to fail from the beginning. Um, but when they come back and tell you that they investigated, they you know they're not entirely lying about it. But a lot of good that does you. Exactly. Um, speaking of the documentation. Hero, mm -hmm. Hero says, so you're documenting as you suggest in your videos, which was a good video, by the way, and you've collected all this information. At what point do you recommend people finally reach out to a lawyer? Mm, that is a really good question. Um, yeah, I, I'll say in general that most people reach out to us too late rather than too early. Um, but I will, I, I, I'll also tell people who reach out to us too early that um, you know, depending on the specific facts of that person's situation, it's a little too early, but this is probably what's coming. Um, so here's what you can kind of do to get ready. And then when that, when that day comes, um, you know, you can come back and see us at that point. Um, but yeah, I think, um, I, I think definitely, you know, when you, you definitely talk to a lawyer before you go to HR, um, that's, that's one kind of bright line that I would draw because there are just a lot of ways to, to get tripped up in that whole process. Um, and HR is very skilled. They are very skilled at, um, tripping you up as you go through the process. Cause you know, oftentimes the people that work in HR can be very absolutely pleasant and delightful people to your face. Like they will, you will leave I mean, you, you go in there knowing that they're that they are there to protect the company, and you tell yourself that. You tell yourself, "Don't trust them," but then they talk to you, and they're just so sweet. And uh, sometimes, and 
and you're like, I, I, they'll, they'll take care of this. I can trust them. Um, but that's just, it's just not the case. I mean, there are good HR people out there. I know if, if any of you are out there, I know, I know some of you are trying to do the right thing. Um, if you know that your company is not doing the right thing and you just continue to keep working there, then I don't really have a lot of sympathy for you. Um, but I know many of you are trying to do the right thing and we do appreciate good HR people when they, when they, uh, when we find them. Um, but as far as, yeah, when to see a lawyer, if you feel like you're about to be fired, you're probably right. So talk to somebody beforehand. We're not going to stop you from getting fired. I will tell you that. I tell people that all the time. Like sometimes people will call frantically like, I have to go talk to HR tomorrow. I'm afraid I'm going to be fired. Can you come with me? And like, number one, no, we can't come with you. Um, your employer is under no obligation to let you have a lawyer there. And number two, even if we were there, that's not, we're not going to stop it. Um, so, um, but it could be helpful to at least, you know, give, give, give somebody a call beforehand so that you know kind of what to do and what not to do in that context. Um, cause there are things obviously you don't want to do in a meeting where you're about to be terminated. Um, you don't want to give them a reason why they could have terminated you, um, during that meeting when they didn't have a good reason when you walked into that meeting, uh, if that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. So, yeah. Um, and I'm trying to think of other kind of situations. Um, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I think another thing too, is just, um, you know, there's a certain, there's a certain level of just kind of everyday crap that, a lot of people have to put up with in their job and um, I, I don't want to minimize that. Like, but sometimes, you know, sometimes it's just, it's just a crappy job. Sometimes you just have a crappy manager and it's nothing, it's nothing illegal. Um, it's just, he's a jerk. Uh, your coworkers are unbearable, that sort of thing. Um, you know, those are the situations where a lawyer's not going to be able to help you. Um, but if it's different, if, if it's, you know, if you're being subjected to obviously different treatment than your colleagues, if you're being targeted for harassment, if you're being targeted for bullying, whether it's by supervisors or by your coworkers, if, if things like that are happening and you are just, you know, it's, it's affecting your well-being, like you're not sleeping or you're not eating um, or you're just, you know, growing more and more despaired every day, then call, call somebody, call a lawyer. Um, and it may not just be a lawyer, but, um, call an employment lawyer just to get their take because, you know, they may not have done anything very specific, like fire you or demote you or, you know, discipline you in some way, but all of that other stuff combined, it may rise to the level that, um, that you may have a legal claim or even if there isn't a legal claim, it, it may rise to the level of, Somebody in the company needs to – somebody higher up in the company needs to know what's going on here. And there have been situations where um, where we have represented people who didn't have specific legal claims and we didn't, we didn't claim that they did. Um, but there was something going on in the company that needed to stop. You know, sometimes it's sexual harassment. Sometimes it's just a particularly toxic person. And, you know, particularly if you can get – 
if you get your notes straight and you can get coworkers to um, provide supporting statements and that sort of thing, then we have in situations like that represented the employee just to kind of help get this toxic or harassing person out of the workplace. Um, it's not because the the employees themselves had legal claims where they could potentially recover compensation or get severance, but it, it has been enough to make the company realize that we got to get rid of this supervisor. Um, so, so those are a few things that I would say as far as when to, when to see a lawyer. And I think it's just, you know, it's, it's best to err on the early side because even if you schedule a consultation or, or, you know, approach a law firm about scheduling a consultation, what we do is we will, you know, we will ask you to tell us what's going on, tell us about the events. And if you have a timeline already, that's great. Um, we can look at that and say, um, you know, we, what, what I've done in the past is I'll meet with somebody because it's usually an hour consultation. I may meet with somebody for 15 minutes and say, you don't really need us yet, but here are things to, here, here are things that I want to tell you and that I think you should do kind of going forward. And then if these other things happen down the road where you get put on a pip or, you know, you don't get that promotion or whatever the situation is, um, then get back in touch with us and we can continue the conversation then. But the general thing is sometimes it's, it's too late to talk to a lawyer. Um, especially if you wait a really long time. Um, but it's almost never too early. Gotcha. Um, talking about the bullying and stuff like that, Erica wanted me to ask, mm-hmm. are you familiar with the Evan Seyfried wrongful death lawsuit? I am a little bit. Yeah. I haven't actually read the lawsuit itself, but I've, um, I've watched some of your podcast about it and I've read some of the, uh, some of the articles out there about it. Yeah. yeah it's horrible. That, that was some, it's horrible. That was terrible. Um, a question that I saw that I think was real good. Uh, are there any myths about right to fire states? Um, uh, let's see. Uh, this is just to be clear. I want to clarify who, with who's ever is asking, um, as opposed to right to work states, as far as union states, or are we talking about like at will employment states? Fire at will state. So yeah, at will employment. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I just want to make sure that, um, that I'm understanding the, the question. Um, I think, um, I think one that I see a lot is that um, uh, is this is on the employee side. What a lot of employees don't um, don't get is that when when the law says that your employer can well, let me start with this. At will employment essentially means that your employer can fire you for any reason, good, stupid, uh, pointless, as long as it's not illegal. So they can't fire you because you're too old. They can't fire you because you just got pregnant and they're worried that you're going to be out for a while and then not come back. Um, There are a lot of illegal reasons why they can't fire you. But the legal reasons are uh, quite broad. So a lot of times, and I kind of mentioned this earlier, there are just a lot of horrible, horrible supervisors out there. They, 
they're mean, they're nasty, they're dumb, uh, they're vindictive, they're petty, and, um, you know, they, they may uh, criticize your performance and harass you and, and, and fire you for all of those reasons. Um, or, you know, for some obviously made up and stupid reason. Or, uh, you know, they, they may run their, be running their business into the ground and making horrible decisions, um, including firing you. All that, unless it's based on some kind of legally protected basis, all that's perfectly legal. Um, because a lot of times people will come, come to us and say, I, I, you know, I'm, this is a hostile work environment. It's, 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 it's hostile. And I agree 100%. But uh, under the law, a hostile work environment has a very specific definition. And it's a very unreasonably high burden to meet. It's another one of those legal... Uh, legal rules um, that judges have made up. It's not in the actual laws, uh, but judges have made this rule about hostile work environments to to raise the bar and make it harder for uh, employees to bring successful claims. So I think that's one thing on the employee side that that I see a lot, where somebody comes to us and they're definitely being mistreated. It's it's a horrible situation. It is hostile, but it's completely unfortunately completely legal um i th- i think that's one of the most um common myths is that unfortunately that, that there is some kind of protection from that kind of thing and sadly there's very little protection um for just garden variety nasty horrible hostile supervisors um, Hero asks, what advice would you give to the person out there listening who may be living paycheck to paycheck and worried that seeing a lawyer will be an additional cost they cannot afford that will secure their termination? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. Um, and this is particularly, you know, this is obviously, this is the retail war zone. So for retail employees, this is a, a huge challenge because lawyers are expensive. Um but yeah, I mean, I would say um, it is, and I, unfortunately, I don't, I don't have a good answer for this. But what I what I will say is that in a lot of instances, um, even in situations where we may not be able to represent somebody, um, we we take a limited number of clients on kind of a contingency basis or severely reduced fees. But we're, we're a pretty small firms, so we can only take a certain number of people at any one time. Um, but what we do, um, if somebody calls us and they have, you know, they have a situation where they need help, even if it's not really a strong legal claim um, that they can pursue and you know take to court all the way, um, we do know a lot of other resources in the area uh, who help people, lower income workers, um, in a variety of industries. So that's one of the things that we can do is put you in contact with people who we know are good and can help and, and whose organizations are designed to tell people who otherwise may not be able to pay for um, legal services. But I, yeah, I think um, in, in another situation too is depending on what the, what the, what the facts are um, you know, there are potential class actions, but those are, we don't do class action work. Um, but I, but I do know that, pursuing a class action um, where you group together with a bunch of other employees 
is incredibly difficult. Um, and it's almost impossible in cases where you are being singled out for some kind of discrimination or abuse because the nature of class actions is that everyone in the class is being treated the same way. So if everyone's being treated, uh, cheated on their paycheck in the same way through the same process, that's kind of a common way that, um, you get a large class of employees where maybe one per one person out of there would not ever be able to hire and pursue hire lawyers to pursue the entire case. But collectively there are enough that, um, that the, that the company will take action. Um, but yeah, I think I, I would still call um, and ask. Um, some some employment lawyers will do free consultations. Some won't. Um, but I think it doesn't hurt to ask because hopefully whoever you call, um, if they can't help you themselves, they will know people and can refer you to people who may be able to help. So I, I get that, that that's, that's a huge barrier. Um, but I think that, you know, I would still, I would still make the call. Awesome. So in going with that, I had posted on Twitter, just like a, a random thought. And I want to see what mm. your thoughts are on this as well. I feel like we're at a point now where would you be behind seeing something like say in senior year of high school, that all students have to take like an introductory class on like labor law and workers rights. And then like freshman year of college, they're required to take a more in-depth course covering what their rights truly are. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that would be, I think that would be fantastic. I think the, uh, I don't want to name any particular organizations, but organizations representing employers would never want to let that happen because the last thing you want is for employees to know what their rights are. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's the thing is people don't, employment laws is complicated. I mean, everybody, you know, everybody of working age has had a job is working. They know what the workplace is like. Most people feel like they kind of understand what goes on in the workplace, but you know, that's one universe. And then the, the, the unnecessarily complex world of employment law and all of the deadlines and statute of limitations and procedural hoops and made up rules that, that are put in your way to um, make it difficult for you to uh, protect those rights. Yeah. I, I would, I would love if we could find a way to make people aware of what their rights are. Um, because again, we, we, we have some good protections in this country. We, we have a long, long way to go. Um, but yes, I think people uh, definitely, I think, well, this whole country would benefit if people um, had a better understanding of, of what their rights were and what their rights weren't um, in the workplace. And that's part of why I'm, I've been uh, trying to post stuff out there just to, to spread as much information as I can. And I need to, uh, I need to clear out more of my schedule lately because I, I haven't been posting enough lately uh, with additional information, but I've been a little swamped. So I'm trying to do my own uh, one-person operation to to spread as much knowledge out there that's that's directly useful for employees. Um, but yeah, I think a more systemized way of of spreading that information is sorely needed. If you wouldn't mind, do do mm -hmm. you mind kind of going over what you discussed in your video on the proper way to document 
Um, yeah, I think there are a few things about documenting. Um, I, I think, uh, again, this, this is a, a similar advice, which is it's never, it's never too early to start documenting. When something, when you see something that's starting to go wrong, whether it's about you or a coworker, um, you, you really need to start documenting it because it's probably going to con- continue for a while. It's going to continue for weeks, months, and you're just not going to remember. You're not going to remember every detail. Um, so what I recommend that people do, and this is not, you know, I do it for clients too, but this is, this is what I would hope that a potential client would walk in already having done, uh, ready to go. It, it, the easiest way I think is just to send yourself an email on your personal email, you know, at the end of a workday or something when something happened. It doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be detailed. Um, just enough to trigger your memory later on about what happened on that particular day. And the reason I say that, and very important, if you have work email, do not use work email for this. Use your Gmail. Use your whatever else. Um, do not use work email because your employer has access to that. And if you get fired, uh, you no longer have access to that. So use your personal email. And I, I suggest that because it it provides a date and a timestamp um, so that if, that, you know, if five years from now you end up in a lawsuit against your former employer after they fire you, um, you know, one of the things that they do to undermine your your claims is say, well, what happened and when did it happen and how, how do you know that's what happened and when? And if you can walk in there with this detailed record from your emails, you know, each email may, may be a couple or three sentences, um, you are going to be in a much, much stronger position than if you're trying to put things together after the fact. So it, documenting as soon as you can after something happens and, um, you know, kind of a, a similar thing is using that to compile a timeline of events. And that's one of the things that we do with, um, potential clients is we, we have everybody create a chronology, um, of what's happened in their work life up to this point. And that's, it's particularly helpful for situations where there's some kind of retaliation where, you know, you've reported something to HR and then things change from that date and you can kind of see the progression of events. But it's also, I mean, the people who go through that process find the actual process itself to be incredibly illuminating because as they start to put these things together after the fact, they, they, they kind of connect the dots and they, they realize, oh, wow, this, is, this has been going on this long and there's kind of a pattern here that I hadn't really, I hadn't really noticed before. It's when, you know, when, the, when this thing at work changed is when everything went downhill. Um, so I think documenting it in, in that way is, is extremely important as well. And, you know, I, I think encouraging coworkers to do it too. If you see something happen to somebody else, um, you know, talk to them, take them aside and say, you know what you need to do? You need to start documenting this stuff and, and here's how you should do it. Um, I, 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 that's one of those things too that I think that, um, that everybody needs to, all employees need to share with each other and encourage each other and back each other up with that. Uh, Cause there's enough effort to by managers and supervisors to turn you against each other and 
make you worry about retaliation if you help somebody out um that you got to stick together and that that's that's a great way to do it um I'm trying to think of what else in there um, I mentioned about documentation. And I don't know, Steve, if you remember other things that I can well, that uh, explain was, in more detail. That was really the key, uh, what you went yeah. through with the email, because, you know, as a manager, I mean, we were always trained, document everything. And, you know, mm -hmm. you don't see that emphasis really, you know, with your average worker that A, doesn't know what their rights are, B, doesn't really know what they're up against. And just the email to themselves like you said, it it gives it you know a time a timeline. It shows you know frequency. It shows patterns. All those things that can benefit them down the road. Because, I mean, God, I mean, just your everyday average person has a hard time you know remembering what they had for breakfast. You know, so yeah. we, you know, like you said, if it's two years down the road, you're not going to remember, or you may misspeak. You may say something that more or less incriminate yourself rather than, you know, what actually happened. So that's really what I was, you know, want you to talk about was the email thing. Uh, yeah. One thing that really fascinates me, and I'm sure you have been involved in it somewhere, is the amount of tax on whistleblowers. Yeah. And, you know, we talk retail and whatnot, and, and that's bad enough because you got everyday average associates, you know, going up against big companies but when you get into like this whistleblower stuff it is like next level steroids you know <laughs> dealing with these huge corporations like i follow ashley jovic you know from mm -hmm. apple and she's going through quite the ordeal and she's laid it out you know publicly and if you really want to see how bad these companies can be and how ugly they can be go look at some of this whistleblower stuff yeah i mean you yeah you think about the big whistleblower cases where, where people are um, disclosing fraudulent practices of millions and millions of dollars defrauding the federal government um, and government contracts. I mean, these, these companies have enormous, enormous financial stakes, um, you know, not just in this one particular whistleblowing situation, but going forward, like, yeah. And, and the government contracting field, obviously, if, if if you're found to have defrauded the government in this situation, then good luck getting any other contracts in the future, and good luck keeping your company afloat without them. So yeah, there is enormous enormous pressure brought to bear on whistleblowers, and yeah, I mean it's it's kind of a different it's it's interesting because we do you know we do discrimination cases and harassment cases and that sort of thing, and we also do whistleblower cases, and it's often a different kind of. Uh, it's a different kind of person, um, and there's no one typical whistleblower, um, but there is kind of a certain kind of personality who we often find in our whistleblowing clients. Um, you know, it, it's it's often people who are very kind of uh, – they're very structured. They think about it, – because it's, it's often a financial whistleblowing some kind of financial uh, mismanagement or fraud going on. So they tend to be kind of numbers-related people anyway, um, but kind of structured and rules-based. There's a right way. There's a proper way to do things. And it, this company is, is obviously, um, you know, violating those procedures. And they kind of take that kind of thing personally, even though at that point it's not the individual whistleblower who's being targeted. But yeah, 
once the disclosure is made, then the then the targeting is just it it can be outrageous. And yeah, I don't I don't necessarily want to name names as far as uh, the companies, but you know it it doesn't take much googling to find some of the largest corporations um, and and stories about what they do to their whistleblowers. It's it's insane. It's frightening. Um, it's frightening. Yeah. But but that's the point. Um, you know, if they – the publicity is awful, obviously. Um, you know, Apple doesn't want to be seen in that way. But they also know that people are going to keep buying their stuff. And it's more valuable to let every other employee know what's going to happen to them if they decide to blow the whistle too. So – you know, in that kind of sick way, it's, uh, you know, and I'm not saying that specific to Apple at all. Um, but a lot of these employers, they know the calculus. Um, is there a PR hit from going after their whistleblower? Possibly. Um, but a lot of people wouldn't care or, or, or follow that kind of news. Um, but the other employees certainly do. And, you know, that's an unfortunate uh, fact is that, they they retaliate for that reason because it's it's very effective not just against that one whistleblower but to silence everybody else who is a potential whistleblower um but you know part of the issue why i raised the kind of personality of the whistleblower is that a lot of times most times um people understand and appreciate what they're about to get themselves into it's one thing to know that before the hand, before the fact um, it's an entirely different thing to experience it, and, and I've never personally experienced it, but I've seen clients experience it, and it's it's overwhelming. I mean, it's it. People think that they're ready for what's coming, but and and they know what's coming, and and that is what's coming, but it's just a different thing to to experience it. Um, and that's yeah, it takes a great deal of bravery, and it's just it's a good thing that people are willing to. Uh, put themselves and their reputations and their livelihoods on the line like that. So real quick, let me ask you in your practice, mm-hmm. what would you say is the most, um, the largest portion of industry that you wound up having to represent people? Um, I think, uh, that's a good question. I'm not sure that I can answer that accurately but i would i would say i think because we're in the dc area i think we we definitely represent more federal employees than probably the average um, employment law firm anywhere else in the country um and that's also true of nonprofits because uh, there are just there are a ton of nonprofits based in the district um so we represent a lot of kind of uh you know, nonprofit management, um, employees. Um, but I think those, I mean, it's, we have, we really have just a huge variety, um, of employees that I think those are really the only two kind of major categories that I can, that I can think of. Um, but yeah, you know, on those same lines, um, most of the worst kind of behavior by managers that we come across is, in the federal government and and in these nonprofits, it's kind of insane. I, I when I started doing this, I didn't really expect that. I'm not sure why I didn't expect it, but um, but some of the most uh, just uh, retaliation with seeming impunity and just lawlessness um, happens in these 
seemingly respectable nonprofit organizations and maybe not so surprisingly um, in in middle management, the federal government. Um, no. It can, it can, I know. Shocking. It can get brutal. Um, like, yes, thank you. Those, those are your tax dollars at work. Uh, awesome. Um, one more thing I want to go back to for documenting because it, it just occurred to me. Um, documenting and HR are two of my favorite topics. So when you are dealing with HR, some of you may have experienced this. HR does not like email. They do not like to put anything in email. So you may report things to HR um, or you may have conversations with HR or HR may call back to follow up. But what you will almost never get is kind of a substantive email with any information from HR. So what you need to do as the as the employee who has gone to HR is if you're going to complain to HR, you have to do it in writing. You have to put it in writing. Um, you can also talk to them about it, but make sure you have it written down first. You can read from it while you're in there and then say, don't worry, I'll send you the email. Or you can just send it um, and submit a written complaint. But always complain in writing. And... Um, going back to the documenting conversations part, when they call you back, you know, follow up on a phone call or whatever, because um, they're not going to send you an email. Let's say they're going to call you up to update you on the status of the investigation. They give you a call. They tell you what's going on. You write it all down. Okay. And then you send back an email to HR because they're not going to send it to you. Hey, thanks for calling. Just wanted to doc. Uh, you don't have to be that obvious. Just want to confirm that you uh, you told me that this is what's happening next, and this is what's happening next, and you know you're going to follow up with me next week. Let me know if I got anything wrong. Send. Um, and I always encourage people to put that last line in there because you know later on down the road, again, I try to look about things. Um, what's going to happen five years from now if if you're in the middle of litigation about this situation? If you just send an email to HR, they will say, yeah, that's not really what we talked about. Um, no, I didn't write my own email about it, but but I definitely remember that's not what I said. Um, it helps to have that last line there because then I would ask the HR representative, well, they wrote here um, to let them know if, if they got anything wrong. So if they got something wrong, did you respond to this email? Nope. No, you didn't. Um, so that's just a good way to kind of nail down and writing again, uh, the, the HR folks, and it's not just HR, but this can also work with managers too. um, you know, nail down in writing what that conversation was, um, cause it's just, it's so important to document. Same thing with, um, you know, even if it's a supervisor who is, if you're helping to, you know, create the schedule or something. You know, supervisors, you're noticing the supervisors start to retaliate against one of the other workers there by changing their schedule to exactly the schedule that they don't want. Um, but they don't want to put their fingerprints on it, so they have you do it. Um, you know, that's something that you can document as well. You can write something to yourself. Um, or, and this is obviously much riskier, you write back to the supervisor and say, I just want to make sure that I got this right. You want me to do this and this and this um, and change the schedule this way. You don't. Obviously, you don't need to put in there because you're obviously going after Susie, um, but that's kind of implied there. And and then there's a record of it because, you know, if that situation blows up and it ends up in court and 
we go back and look through the emails. Well, sure enough, um, there is documentation as it's happening of uh, this schedule change happening because of the direction of the supervisor. Um, so those are a couple of other kind of uh, documentation tips I would give. Speaking of the HR lack of email contact, is that um, mm-hmm. purposeful to keep from having things documented? It, ha- it must be. It must be. I mean, email's been around for a long time. I, I mean, I just don't, I can't, I, I have never been to HR school, so I don't know exactly what they, what they go through there. Um, but I'm positive that make a phone call, don't put it in writing is, is one of the classes. And uh, don't tell anybody about what happens in the investigation is another one of the classes. Um, I'm sure there are others I can think of. Um, but yeah, it is, it is absolutely commonplace. And I, I'm, I'm sure that anybody out there who's dealt with HR, you know, you may look back and think about it and like, oh yeah, I actually, that was all phone calls. Um, but I, that that's the reason. That It's just... I, my mind's blown. I was a manager for, for 25 years and you're right. They don't respond. They they only respond to, to to tell the manager that okay we're going after this person, <laughs> mm. you know. Well, that's good if they put that in writing. I appreciate yeah. that. <laughs> but it's but that would be a fun. Oh, yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's like uh, Iron Maiden. The comment she goes, "Wow, I think back to the times I went to HR about things, and I've literally never had any correspondence in writing." There, yep. There you go. And it's hard too because then you're like. What was that person's name? Like it was a few years ago. That HR person's gone. I didn't remember who that was that I talked to. That makes it a lot harder for oh, you. Oh yeah, it does. Um, Tremendously. Yeah. That's wow. You that I think you just blew most of our minds with that. When I think as we all look back, we're like, well, damn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. And again, that's not that's not even employment law. Like, I didn't learn that in law school, I just learned that from dealing with a bunch of cases with a bunch of HR people. And, you know, and you have litigation, you always want to see, you always want to see the emails even more. So you always want to see the text messages. And I, I could talk for a separate 60 minutes about, um, the dangers of text messages from the employee side and the employer that side. The worst thing that ever happened. <laughs> it's, the text messages are always the worst um, or the best, depending on how you want to look at it. Um, but yeah, there are just so many situations where there's just no email from HR. And like, were you working there then? D- did you do anything? Um, it's just not documented. Wow. The, I got to tell you, uh, Mr. Whalen, this has been interesting. I'm so glad you came on. I have enjoyed it. I thank you very much for having me. I mean, this, you know, these kind of things matter a lot, you know, and that kind of goes a whole, you know, along the way with education, you know, just the little things, mm-hmm. like you said, the broad scope things that people can do, you know, to protect themselves. And, you know, there's just not a lot of, I mean, there's resources out there, but some of them are kind of hard to get to, you know, and it, it's yeah. nice you know, having people like what you do on Twitter, you know, the different things that you post, especially about dealing with HR, which, you know, obviously for retail employees specifically, that's really a big deal, you know, for retail because HR is always the block, you know, that's the one that we got to deal with. And half the time, most of us that work at retail, you know, think that they're useless resources and not human resources because they're terrible. You know, you never get anything out of them. So, but thank you so much for being here. Uh, we're sitting at an hour four. 
Um, I don't want to keep you much longer. I know you got probably work tomorrow and and you've got a hard job, sir. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard, but it, it's, it's, that's the thing, no matter how, uh, how annoying or how difficult any particular day is, it's, it's, it's good to be able to do it, uh, for this purpose. So. Yeah. We appreciate the fact that you're on the right side. Thank you. Yeah. So there need to be more of us on this side. There are, there are a lot of, uh, a lot of big firms with a lot of money on the other side. Hey, maybe maybe um, we can push that education thing through, you know, schools and whatnot and you can go teach. That'd be great. I can do that. Awesome. I can do both. Excellent. Alrighty, sir. You have yourself an absolutely wonderful rest of your evening. Once again, I thank you so much and we may be in touch again soon. And maybe we just do a whole 60 minutes on text message. Cause I bet that is good. I, I bet we could do it. All right. But yeah, I'd love to do, a, I'd love to do it again. All righty, sir. Thank you so much. Everybody, thank you for being here. Uh, next week, we've got Marissa Baker um, that's going to be on talking about the study they did for COVID protections in grocery stores on the West Coast. That's going to be highly intriguing. So everybody, once again, thank you all for being here. Everybody have a great night. Stay safe, and we will see you next time.